Hey guys, it's Liz Shelton's, and you are listening to another episode of Weeds in the Wild, our spinoff podcast where we talk about the policy decisions that get made at all different levels of government and what kind of impact they have on regular people's lives. Today, our producer Bird Pinkerton has a story about a topic that's been in the news a ton, immigration, and what our policies around immigration look like and what they've looked like in the past. Hope you enjoy. I was 13, I believe, at the time of the raid. This is Pedro Lopez Vega. And, I mean, like, 13-year-old Pedro is so naive at this age. Like, there's a lot of things that I don't understand. Um, Immigration laws or anything. That 13-year-old Pedro was just, like, in class. And uh, as we were going into the, the class, we've noticed that there was this, like, helicopter a black helicopter that was just roaming around the town. Everybody's like, what is it? Who is it? You know, what's going on? And I thought, if it is immigration, uh, I have my mom working. Um, it, it was just, it, it, I, I couldn't really um, start to comprehend not having my mom when I got home. And then they, they, they definitely confirmed that, you know, it, it was, it was immigration. And, um, yeah, at that moment, I just remember sinking into my desk and, and just, just crying. All of that happened on May 12th of 2008 in this small Iowa town called Postville. ICE, that's Immigration and Customs Enforcement, they came in and raided a kosher meatpacking plant. 389 illegal immigrants were arrested. Loaded onto buses and taken away. Pedro's mom was one of the workers who was rounded up. And at least 90 people are facing criminal charges this midday, another 300 or so waiting to be processed, and they could be in violation of immigration regulations. Most of those people were charged, sent to prison for a few months, and then deported. Postville is a small Iowa town. Wide Main Street, bunch of brick buildings, maybe like 3,000 people live there. And today, we're going to use the story of this one big raid to understand how our immigration laws affected those people and people all across the state of Iowa. And then we're going to take a step back and look more closely at the immigration laws themselves, to see if maybe we could be doing something differently. In a way, the postal raid almost pops the hood on the stress of immigration enforcement that is just pervasive and constant for many communities in our country. This is Nicole Novak. She is an epidemiologist at the University of Michigan. And she was telling me that, yes, raids are traumatizing, as you would expect, for the people who experience them firsthand, like Pedro's mom or Pedro. But there are also effects that are a little more surprising, like this study of Iowa babies that Nicole and her colleagues did. The main thing we saw was that infants born after the Postville raid were more likely to be born at low birth weights. Low birth weight can be this sign of stress during the pregnancy. And the thing that Nicole and her colleagues noticed is that 
only babies born to Latina moms suddenly saw this spike in low birth weights after Postville. And just to be clear, this was not just people in the raid or people in the town of Postville or even just immigrants. It affected many communities across the Midwest and and in the case of our study in the state of Iowa. It was like this ripple effect from Postville outwards, which is weird. Like, how does a raid in one small town affect the health of pregnant women all across the state? I think a lot of the reason we saw it is people being afraid of further immigration enforcement and then people changing their day-to-day lives or having their day-to-day lives changed for them. Take Pedro, for example, the kid who was 13 when his mom was taken away. When he got home from school that day, his dad was panicked that immigration officials were going to come to their home and pick them up. He just sent us down to the basement. Just stay down there for, for a little bit. And a little bit turned out to be, I think, a week and a half or something like that. A week and a half in a basement? Yeah, we we just, it was, we didn't know how long they were going to be there. We didn't know what was going to happen next. And so what this University of Michigan study shows is that this wasn't just limited to people like Pedro and his family. People in towns all across the state were looking at Postville and freaking out. A lot of towns saw themselves in Postville. It's a small town centered around meat processing and driven by immigrant labor and oftentimes Latino immigrant labor. And that's also the case with many towns throughout the whole state of Iowa. I talked to this young woman named Nilvia Bronson. She is protected from deportation now, but back in 2008, when the Postville raid happened, she was an undocumented teenager living in New Hampton, which is about an hour away from Postville. There's a factory in New Hampton, and that was where the majority of undocumented immigrants worked for a time. She remembers people thinking, Okay, is it coming to us next? And even though people weren't necessarily hiding out in their basements like Pedro and his family, people were trying to decide, like, should they not go to work and maybe get fired or go to work and get deported? And even going outside was a much bigger deal than it had been. I remember my mom was telling us, you know, we have to be much more careful. And Nicole Novak says that all this stress is linked to a whole mess of other problems. To depression, to anxiety, and even to long-term physical poor health, things like diabetes, hormone imbalances. And in the study, it was really clear that it was not just affecting undocumented people. We saw just as big of an increase in low birth weight among infants born to U.S.-born Latina moms as we did to immigrant Latina moms. She can't definitively say why, but a lot of people live in mixed-status communities. Maybe they're a citizen, or they're documented, but their parents aren't, or their siblings aren't. And so they're worried about their family and their friends, and that ends up actually affecting their own health. And there's actually another way that raids can affect documented people or citizens they can affect the economy. After the raid, Pedro's mom was taken away. But his dad was actually also working at the meatpacking plant. He was just on a different shift. And because he was undocumented, 
After the raid, he couldn't go back to work there. And I remember that there were times that we didn't have enough money for groceries or, or to pay all the bills, so my older sister and my dad would decide which one we, we needed, the light or the water and things like that. Suddenly this town, which had only like 3,000 people living in it, lost hundreds of those people to the raid. And then several hundred more moved away or lost their jobs like Pedro's dad. They weren't spending any money, and that tanked the town's economy. It was uh, the ghost town. This is Joel Rucal. He was 14 around the time of the raid, and his mom also got detained. Before the raid, there were uh, two restaurants, one from Guatemala and two Mexican restaurants, and they used to be full of people all the weekend. Those restaurants closed. Most stores had to close because they didn't have customers. Grocery stores, there was a clothing store. The people that didn't get arrested in the raid, they were leaving to, to different states, trying to leave the nightmare behind. So, okay, raids can have these big consequences. But there are also people who argue that this kind of stress and unemployment is a good thing. It causes people who are living here illegally to reevaluate their choice to live here illegally. This is Jessica Vaughn from the Center for Immigration Studies. And just to be completely clear, several people I spoke to disagree with this idea that people will just go away voluntarily if they're stressed enough. But she did raise another point about workplace raids that does seem to apply in Postville. ICE investigators can speak with the workers to find out about working conditions and other laws that may have been broken by that employer. So remember Joel, the young man that we heard from earlier? I started working after my uh, eighth grade from middle school. He was working at Agriprocessors, the kosher meatpacking plant, when he was 14 years old. I work in the chicken cut-up department. And he worked a 12-hour shift. From 6 p.m. until 6 in the morning. After the raid, investigators found evidence of a lot of mistreatment. And so it gives ICE and other federal investigators the chance to build that case to hold that employer accountable for the laws that they are breaking. Joel is definitely not saying that he thinks the Postville raid was a good thing at all. But in my conversation with Jessica Vaughn, she kept making this one point. There's a a good reason we have immigration laws, and so they should be enforced. And this is something I want to explore a little bit more, because if you start from the premise that our immigration laws make sense and need to be enforced— then all of these consequences might just seem like necessary fallout. But after the break, we're actually going to look at where our current immigration laws come from, how they led to raids like Postville, and push back a little bit on the idea that they all make perfect sense. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. 
If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 200 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry, nationwide. Just post once and watch the qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No more juggling emails or calls to your office. You can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. And right now, listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com weeds. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com weeds. All right. How did we get to immigration raids in the first place? Daryl Lind is the great explainer of all things immigration here at Fox, so she's going to help explain this. The notion of immigration that we have now, where you have to apply in advance and there are you know, limits on how many people we can accept, dates back to around the turn of the 20th century. Okay, so I found this radio play from 1955 that illustrates this. This country has been a mother of exiles. The narrator is kind of walking through the history of immigration to the U.S. And there is lots and lots of stuff about Western Europe. Dutch, Swedes, French, Germans, Scots. All fine and dandy until the late 1800s. The last quarter of the 19th century saw a shift in the immigrant tide from northern and western to southern and eastern Europe. There were also more immigrants from Asia. Around the First World War, you have people really worrying that if we don't control immigration in general, that the ethnic composition of the U.S. will change. When they established families, their amazing fecundity caused further concern as to what would become of the older stocks in the American population. Uh, Yeah, you heard that correctly. She really is saying that Eastern European immigrants were having lots of babies And it was making some Americans nervous. It was explicitly racist. In the 1920s, they passed this law that puts a quota on how many immigrants can come from different European countries. Each country gets a different number based on the percentage of people from that country that were already in the U.S. before 1900. For example, a country like Britain can send 34,007 people every year if it wants But a country like Estonia can only send 124 people. They wanted to literally turn back the clock to a time when most immigration to the U.S. was Western and Northern European. And this is the law for the first half of the 1900s until Eastern Europeans kind of start to assimilate. It was certainly no longer cool by that point. Uh, to kind of buy into the scientific, eugenic idea that there was something inherently undesirable about certain races of people. All of this leads to 1965, when U.S. immigration laws get rewritten. For over four decades, the immigration policy of the United States has been twisted by the harsh injustice of the national origins quota system. This is President Lyndon B. Johnson. He is standing next to the Statue of Liberty, talking to this big crowd about what the new law means. This bill says simply that from this day forth, those wishing to immigrate to America shall be admitted on the basis of their skills and their close relationships 
to those already here. So this like racist quota system is gone. And Johnson says this kind of funny thing. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. It does not affect the lives of millions. But of course, it did affect the lives of millions, and especially millions of migrants from Mexico. So far, we have basically been focused on migration from Europe. And that is because most of the immigration debates and the quota law, they were also all focused on migration from Europe. Dutch, Swedes, French, Germans, Scots. But our rules for Mexico and South America were completely different. There was no quota. Actually, there was a whole government program designed to bring people in. So during World War II, obviously, a lot of working age men were being sent to the front, were being you know, drafted into the war effort. And so there was a massive labor shortage in the jobs that they had traditionally done. For example, in agriculture. The placement of thousands of workers at the right place at the right time is an immense job, especially at harvest time. This is a promotional video from the Farm Bureau. Farm jobs, which are tough, dirty, or unpleasant, are generally referred to as stoop labor. Understandably, then, this is the only area in which the American farm labor supply falls short and is supplemented by Mexican citizens. The government allowed farmers to bring workers from Mexico for seasonal agricultural labor. The term most commonly used is braceros, was called the Bracero Program. Come labor for your mother, for your father and your brother, for your sisters and your lovers. Bracero. The Bracero Program, unlike the kind of work visa programs we have today, was explicitly designed to be seasonal. You would come in and you would work during the harvest season. And then you would go back to Mexico. And this was like half a million people every year. Oh, welcome to California, where the friendly farmers will take care of you. But then we have this new immigration law in 1965, and it makes things way more fair for Europe. Britain doesn't get like half of all of the visas anymore. But it also means that, for the first time, there's a limit on how many people can come in from Mexico. And the Bracero program gets the axe. There were still some seasonal work visas, but not nearly as many as there were workers. I mean, that gave people two options. They could either just kind of chill and not work, or they could come to the U.S. without documents. And suddenly we start hearing stuff about this invasion of aliens who are coming in in huge numbers. This idea of the illegal immigrant workers really set by these people who were, you know, previously guest workers and who are coming to California and picking grapes. And this tension builds and builds until you get to the 1980s. In 1986, President Reagan signs the Immigration Reform and Control Act. This is probably better known as IRCA. And basically, this act puts a ton of money and resources into the U.S.-Mexico border to build up enforcement. So the logic here is... If we start really putting people on the border to monitor immigrants coming in, 
then they won't, you know, we won't have this kind of back and forth, back and forth work migration that we have now, which is totally correct, except that they didn't realize that instead of walling people out and keeping them in Mexico, they were walling people in, keeping them in the U.S. Erka made it more dangerous and more expensive to cross the border. You had to go through the desert and rely on these guides. So you really only wanted to risk it once. This population, because it had been a work population, it had been mostly working-aged men. And once they were stuck on one side of the border, it made sense for them to ask their family to come to them. Which means... Instead of having a relatively small population of people who are here to work and then leaving, you have people who are really bringing their families, settling down and beginning to integrate into their communities. Which sets the stage for this growing undocumented population. And then President Bill Clinton comes into office. We will ask the Democrats who believe in our cause to come forward, but we will look to among the ranks of independents and Republicans who are willing to roll up their sleeves, be a part of a new partnership, and get on with the business of dealing with this nation's problems. President Clinton, as a centrist Democrat, was very much interested in and committed to improved and strengthened immigration enforcement. This is Doris Meisner. I was in the Clinton administration as the commissioner of the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Clinton and his administration worked with both the Republicans and the Democrats to produce an immigration law in 1996. IRA, IRA. The Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. Lamar Smith is a Republican congressman who pushed for it. And our aim in this bill is to reduce illegal immigration, uh, better secure the borders, protect jobs for American citizens. To do this, Ira Ira created this toolkit full of techniques to secure the border. It had a variety of provisions which made enforcement much more stringent. It restricts welfare and social services for legal immigrants in the U.S. It kind of increases employer enforcement And it makes it a lot harder if you're in the U.S. without papers to get legal. Which sounds super dramatic, except that in the 1990s, this toolkit wasn't used a whole lot. There were not nearly the resources available to fully implement many of the measures in IRA-IRA. People didn't really realize just how much broader and more powerful this enforcement machine would be if you actually gave it the money. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. Until suddenly after 9-11, you do. What happened after 9-11 is, of course, that immigration enforcement and immigration authorities became a central part of the country's response to terrorism. So suddenly you have this interior force that is able to find and deport immigrants who have been living in the U.S. for the first time really in U.S. history. 389 illegal immigrants were arrested. Loaded onto buses and taken away. Which brings us back to Postville. The Bush administration puts a lot of effort into these very big workplace raids with helicopters and ICE working with local police. And then Barack Obama comes into office saying, The system isn't working when communities are terrorized by ICE immigration raids, when nursing mothers are torn from their babies 
when children come home from school to find their parents missing, when people are detained without access to legal counsel, when all that's happening, the system just isn't working, and we need to change it. But actually, under Obama, you just get kind of a different flavor of immigration raid. So the Obama administration took the approach generally that this massive enforcement regime had been created, and it was kind of a big, dumb monster. So to make it less dumb, they made it more efficient. They identified specific people to arrest in raids, either people who had some sort of criminal record or who had gotten a final order of deportation. There were smaller raids, but there were still definitely raids. So even though the Obama administration talked itself blue in the face. Felons, not families. Saying we're not trying to round people up who don't have criminal records. Criminals, not children. We're not trying to break up families. Gang members, not a mom who's working hard to provide for her kids. Raids are raids. And so even in the context of relatively suppressed or at least less intensive immigration enforcement, that kind of reminder of vulnerability is still extremely powerful. Instead of saying, like, immigration raids make sense because they make sense under our current immigration laws, maybe we should be asking, wait, do those immigration laws make sense? I think now, 20 years later, I I myself think that Many elements of the 1996 laws are too harsh. Doris Meisner was saying, the problem is not the law in itself. I think under optimum legislative circumstances, there would have been fixes to the 96 laws every couple of years since based on experience. In the history of this country, we have had major rewrites of all of our immigration laws every couple of decades. That hasn't happened. The 96 laws have been pretty much untouched. And the more politically gridlocked and paralyzed we become, the longer we are going to have to wait before we can sit down and actually ask the question, do the goals of our immigration laws make sense? And do the ways that we enforce them produce the results that we want. This episode was produced by me, Bird Pinkerton. It was edited by Nishat Korwa and Liz Shelton's with engineering from Peter Leonard and Afim Shapiro. Special, special thanks to Luis Argueta, who put me in touch with Joel and Pedro. He has a trio of documentaries about Postville. The first is called Abused, the Postville Raid. And thanks also to Andy Lancet at the New York Public Radio Archives. And as always, we would love to hear what you think of this episode. I read all of your emails. Uh, So send your thoughts along to Weeds at Vox.com. 